Welcome to Love Nature, a presentation of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And with this episode, we begin the third season. The North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences is a proud participant of the North Carolina Science Festival, a month-long celebration of science every April. You can find this online at ncsciencefestival.org. We're kicking off our third season with award-winning science communicator, host, and producer, Emily Grassley. Emily is a regular host for PBS programs, including the six-part digital series, In Our Nature. As a classically trained violinist and former museum curator, Emily knows science and art are about communication and connection. Hear Emily's perspective and discover how she uses her talents and experiences to advocate for museums and natural spaces. If you're a fan of what we do here, please consider subscribing. That way you never miss an episode and they will all be delivered directly to you as they are released. And if you do enjoy the show, please share it with others that you think would enjoy it as well. You can find the Love Nature podcast at love-nature.org. And you can explore our museum virtually at naturalsciences.org. Now, here are our hosts, CEO and Director of the Museum, Dr. Eric Dorfman, and Chief Veterinarian and Director of Veterinary Science, Dr. Dan Dombrowski. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You are known as a science advocate and an interpreter. And as much as you are associated with science and really cool perspectives that uh, certainly I hadn't thought about before, you actually started your career as an artist. And I'd love to hear more about the sort of the beginning of the art part of it and how you pivoted to science communication? It's not a straightforward path. When I tell people what I do as a science communicator and a a video host, and usually their first question is, well, where did you go to school? Like, where'd you get your science degree? I have a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in painting. Um, And that's because I, I wanted to be an artist from you know, the time I was in high school, probably even earlier from middle school. Um, Just always saw art and the arts in general as like an amazing variety of communicative tools. It was like whatever medium you wanted to look at or pick up, whether it was pottery or poetry or um, orchestra or whatever, there was an element of self-expression in it that I found really compelling. Um, And so that was something that I didn't see necessarily in the sciences. Sciences always felt a lot less creative, a lot more prescribed, And obviously now I I know that to be a a huge misconception, but Mm. when it came to, you know, picking colleges or looking at degrees, I went to the University of Montana in Missoula to study art and music. So I'm also a classically trained violinist. And that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So these were, that was my path. You know, I, I got into painting and landscape painting, especially because I'm from South Dakota. And when I tell people that, you know, living now in Illinois and in Chicago, people are like, oh, that's interesting. Um, (laughs) But growing up, it, it was just where I was from. And 
it wasn't until, you know, living in Montana for a number of years when I began to really appreciate the unique perspective I had being from such a rural part of the country. Rapid City, South Dakota is the second largest city in the entire state of South Dakota. The entire state doesn't even have a million people. (laughs) And Rapid City has 60,000 people as the second largest city. (laughs) When I went to Missoula, It just, it cemented in my mind just how valuable it was to take that perspective of being so close to the landscape, being a descendant of people in agriculture. You know, I'm the great, great granddaughter, um, many generations of farmers and ranchers in my family. And I wanted to encapsulate this idea of, you know, humans being at the whims of the environment at that point, from the perspective of agriculture, like, you know, we're part of yeah. the country that has some of the most volatile and unpredictable weather patterns in anywhere in the U.S. You know, you're talking about, you know, softball size hailstorms and track, you know, tractors that can get picked up by a tornado. And, you know, the, both of those things happened within the last three years in yeah. South Dakota. Yeah. In order to capture that, I decided I was going to make large scale landscape paintings. And so that's what I was doing up until I got to the point where I fell into the world of natural history museums and then to kind of a 180, but, but not really. I went from painting large, you know, landscape paintings to just painting smaller scenes of nature that were inspired from my time volunteering in a natural history collection. And my advocacy then for museums was a direct result of using a museum as an artistic resource and seeing from that perspective just how underfunded natural history museums were. So instead of being an advocate for like nature and the environment in a broader artistic perspective, I began taking my, you know, artistic talents and trying to funnel them into advocacy for this museum instead and that, you know, that just developed and morphed into so many different ways and eventually landed as being a YouTube show that brought me to the Field Museum in Chicago. So it's not a straightforward path, but right before we got on this call, I, I was painting again. It's like, I just can't get it out of my system. It's just being an artist is just who I am and I'll never be rid of it. And I'm fine with that. This sort of agricultural, you know, close to the earth background, did were, were you kind of you know, like a science and nature nerd from that and just kind of took it for granted? Or, or did you sort of come around to, to that after the, the art and, you know, getting getting that training? It had such wonderful opportunities to be involved in the natural world from a young age, just because of the proximity. Growing up, our house was, you know, in Rapid City, but still within the Black Hills of South Dakota. And I very vividly remember on a couple of occasions seeing a bobcat walk through my backyard um, or, you know, just being able to see these um, fantastic scenes of nature, whether you were in the Black Hills or going out to the Badlands and seeing a different environment. So just within the general area where I grew up, so many different habitats and ecosystems. You talk about that. It makes me think about what we try to do at the museum is, is open that world up for everyone, whether they're able to get to the the wilderness or not hopefully encourage people to take that next step to experience it firsthand a a lot of scientists actually really are fantastic artists when you think about somebody like well isaac asimov you know a huge hero of mine do you think there's any 
difference between being a communicator of science and a communicator of art? Not necessarily. I think it comes down to just being natural communicators and storytellers of the world and our perspective within the world. It's interesting when you think about talking to scientists and whether or not scientists are artists, because that could take how many different visual approaches as well, or not visual approaches. Maybe artists are composers as well who are making artistic or orchestral pieces inspired by the natural world, or a scientist who is also a fashion designer and model, which are both (laughs) examples of scientists who I know who are artists. So you expand, like you said, within your worldview of what's possible, of what people look like, and, you know, people fall on an amazing spectrum of hobbies and intersections and I what I love too about the work I do as a science communicator when we talk about scientists as being artists or scientists as being communicators it's always like sort of putting the onus on them to come up with that medium on their own a little bit Mm. rather is looking at like science communication as a tool of helping scientists become better communicators on their own and therefore like better able to embrace their own creative practices as part of their scientific outreach. I'm dying to to talk to you about our recent project in our nature. So in our nature was a six part mini series is a digital series from PBS digital studios that was live last fall. The purpose of in our nature was to make a series that looked at similarities between environments that were seemingly very distant in this case, looking at uh, ecosystems in North America and ecosystems in Africa and sort of drawing these parallels and creating links between um, the two. So for instance, looking at stories of like how um, scavengers in the Serengeti uh, contribute to nutrient cycling on a scale that's so much faster than, for instance, nutrient cycling in an experimental forest in Oregon. Like Africa, nutrient cycling happens on you know, a much faster scale season to season versus an environment in the Pacific Northwest, which is on a, you know, 200 to 1000 year nutrient cycling scale, trying to juxtapose stories between the two. But again, to like draw the similarities to help the audience understand that when we talk about the things that are happening in the environment, you can find examples of them wherever you are in the world. So that was that was our primary goal with that series. For me, I, I one of the episodes, uh, the surprising species that everything else depends on, was great because I, I actually learned something about wildebeests. And as a veterinarian, <laughs> there's a disease element and this great you know impact on a population. And uh, I, I love the way it was presented. And they bounced back after this disease was actually eradicated, which is something, you know, that we we rarely are able to do. And it was related to agriculture, right? Uh, you know, render pest is the name of the disease. But can you tell us a little bit about that? And then your piece in it was actually looking in North America at, at bison and the similarities. Yeah, what's interesting about that episode in particular was everything that we couldn't include in it in terms of like the deeper connections, which is that, and I know, you know, Eric, your background in natural history museums, you'll appreciate this story too, but the story about Rinderpest and the impact that that 
virus had. It was a respiratory virus that I yeah. believe was introduced from livestock, brought over, you know, to, to, to Somalia, and then was leading to species extinctions from the hoofed animals, and then the scavengers were first getting starved out. But it was a pandemic like that that was also the reason why field museum scientists and taxidermists went to Somalia in the 1890s in order to create the first collections of some of those animals to bring back to North America to show people in the United States the biodiversity that was going to be lost because of human impact and expansion at that time. So we see so often these same sort of stories from history coming up and you see the global impacts of those. And so I think when it came to my story, looking at the North American bison and looking at the similarities, um, you're looking at the eradication of wildebeest because of a virus um, in Africa, but you're looking at the eradication of bison in North America because of human impact and because of concerted human impact, not just passive um, overhunting as what I was brought up to believe truly, but because of government sanctioned eradication campaigns with the effort and the goal of starving out indigenous peoples. And so there are a lot of similarities between these stories about colonization and about manifest destiny. And so I think, you know, we though, unfortunately those are themes we see today in stories and conservation. And these are, these are themes that come up again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And in many instances we do learn from them, but you know, in making this series, hopefully we're able to reach a new generation of people who are learning about these stories for the first time and being able to talk about the story of the North American bison. Although it's something that I have covered previous to In Our Nature through my own communication, it was even me taking a new look at this story for PBS Digital Studios that I was learning new things and I was challenging my own misconceptions or my own understanding about the history of bison in the U.S. One of the episodes that really resonated with me, having grown up in California and seeing La Brea Tar Pits as a kid, that mammoth there in that pool of of, um, liquefied asphalt, (laughs) I found, (laughs) was really resonant. And the funny thing is, I saw it in a a couple of years ago, I wrote a paper on the use of ivory in natural history museums. And the reviewers of that paper, going back and forth, because I said, of course, uh, um, mammoths went extinct because of human impacts of various kinds. And they were saying, no, they, the reviewers, no, they were dying out anyway. It wasn't that. And so here, here you go through and pick apart this this conundrum of what killed them off and and going to paleobotany as as the answer was of course that's what you should be doing Mm. but then to even for you to think of the journey as you wrote that episode pretty impressive so what was like what catalyzed you to start even thinking about that you hear this um, concept that Anthropocene come up a lot. Mm-hmm. I think at this point, there are some, it's become common vernacular. We sort of know that humans are responsible for the sixth major mass extinction event that we are living through. And so there is, you know, we are, cons- I think, more consistently as storytellers and science communicators thinking about all of our stories within the context of the Anthropocene. And it is amazing when you look at um, the evolution of all life on Earth and you go back to like deep, deep time, the fossil record is 
fairly limited, you know, the further you go back in time and it becomes more and more complete, the closer you come to present day. So you would think that with more information, more researchers, more resources, better technology, that we would have fewer of these major mysteries that we would have absolutely figured out by now why megafauna in North America went extinct versus why they largely didn't in Africa. And I think the amazing thing to me is that we get closer and closer to finding answers, but we haven't found an absolute yet. And the evolution of science itself is growing in a way that I think more scientists are becoming more comfortable with saying we don't know. Or we think that maybe the way we've been looking at this has been wrong. And one of the amazing things about diversifying science in general is that I think you start to pick apart a lot of the the ego, the more people you have working on a project, like the fewer that it is one person's collective um, or one person's, you know, individual contribution. And so I think, again, taking this idea of looking at, the extinction of megafauna in North America, the exciting thing about it is, yes, you know, you can look at species that existed 10,000 years ago and see direct comparisons to what's not there today. But you can find a lot of amazing things of what is surviving. Um, To go back to finding nature and discovery in your own backyard, the question is, what happened to the megafauna? But maybe the question really should have been, what happened to the regular fauna? Like, <laughs> because they are thriving. That's yeah, the small yeah. mammals, you know, the raccoons and the opossums, yeah. like these animals are really well adapted to the environments we have today. So even framing of the question opens up a lot of new interesting ideas. Right. Um, yeah. You can draw back to, you go back to the science, back to the La Brea tar pits and you mentioning Um, finding some of the answers or the clues to some of these answers by looking at like paleobotany. Um, I mean, there are, you know, that's a new way of like looking at the same sort of question, uh, looking at the other aspects that may have been overlooked instead of looking at, you know, just the mammoths where we should be looking at the DNA that they can take from the root of the mammoth to maybe find the the answers themselves. (laughs) So many of the topics that you cover you know, it can be disheartening. But in both of these cases, these episodes, there's like a glimmer of hope at the end. And what what do you think about that? Do you do you feel like there's always a little bit of hope to sort of give to people when you tell these stories? Just as you said, like I every one of those episodes leaves with a little glimmer of hope. And where do I get my hope? Well, I'm only a a portion of those episodes. Like I'm the host and the writer. I'm the conduit through which the audience goes along on this educational journey. But there are so many other people involved. There are the people that I'm interviewing. There are the people behind me and, you know, on the camera recording audio. There are people on the legal teams. There's people on the press. (laughs) You know, it's just like there are so many different people on so many different levels of these kind of projects, the projects that I am so privileged to work on, which are primarily video projects. And at every level the people working on the sort of things that I do are so passionate. It doesn't matter if they're my accountant or again, like on the legal team or just, just amazing people at every level of these projects. And they're the ones that really give me hope because you talk about, you know, 
if you go to someone who works in a museum who's doing public outreach every single day and they're having to interact with the public who are bringing their own questions about climate change. I mean, talk about the resilience of those docents. Those docents yeah. are like literally boots <laughs> on the ground dealing with the public and, and you know, helping the public uh, visitors to museums really wrap their own heads around it when they might think that emailing a curator or a scientist who's directly responsible for that research, that's going to be completely inaccessible. So to me, when you just look around the world of those who are invested in, you know, their own communities, in betterment of their own communities, in environmental issues, or involved, you know, in their own kids' schools, it just, that's the sort of thing that gets me hope is like, it doesn't matter where you look, there are people who are fighting for the planet and fighting for equity and, um, that stuff just gets me so jazzed. So do you think in our nature is, is it primarily aimed at kids, do you think? Not necessarily. I think one of the beautiful things about digital series is that, especially digital series that are on YouTube, YouTube is owned by Google. So you get some of the best analytics that you could imagine. Right. Um, <laughs> so we can see, you know, who's watching this stuff. And like, while I don't have access to the analytics for that series, I can tell you the sort of very similar projects I've worked on in the capacity I've worked on that show. I mean, the primary audience, 75% of it, those kind of shows, I would say are between the ages of like 18 and 34. Right, so right. They're, they're older kids, right? And certainly I would say high school age is maybe an appropriate learning level, but not younger. I mean, we're talking about Again, like the eradication of the North American bison. And we use those words. Like we're not, right. yeah, we're, sure. the vocabulary yeah. is really geared towards, um, if not people with a science background, people who are generally interested in it. And the other thing too is, you know, kids aren't kids forever. They grow up. Yes, right? yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so, you know, when I worked at the Field Museum in Chicago, my primary role there, my job as chief curiosity correspondent, which was still, I'm convinced, the best job title of all time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my role at the Field Museum was to make our YouTube videos for our channel, The Brain Scoop. And I did that from the years of 2013 to 2020. So that was about seven and a half years. We created hundreds of videos. And mm -hmm. Since I've left that project, you know, part of me has wondered like, well, what's going to be the life of those videos now that I'm no longer contributing to that library anymore? But the thing I realized after a while was doing videos for seven years is an entire like generation of high school students yeah. to the point yeah. where, you know, someone who was watching my show when they were a sixth grader is now getting their master's degree. And I hear stories like that all the time from people, you know, who were in it at the age that I was, you know, creating it as, and as we, you know, both grew, they grew along with the channel and now they're out in the world and having their own kids and their own, you know, PIs in their own research labs. And whether it's made for kids or not, I think too, if kids are watching it, man, they teach their parents a lot of stuff. For sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm sort of a create stuff for anyone who's going to be excited enough to watch it, whether they're, you know, in elementary school or that person's grandmother. If you were going to advise some young person who wants to do what you're doing, what would you tell them? The, the arts, I think, and if I could just kind of uh, wax poetic about my undergraduate degree at, at the University of Montana, it was the sort of thing where we got to dabble in any and everything we wanted, you know, just the creative 
freedom to try, you know, traditional photography, digital photography, printmaking, sculpture, ceramics. Um, it was four years of just experimenting with media and that, right. that's just learning the different techniques. In addition to that, we were just really encouraged to be thinking about the concepts and the content of it on the side. You know, I went to a pretty traditional art program, which is that we weren't so conceptual as a lot of, I think, contemporary art schools might be. I think that really gave me a solid foundation and just the techniques that you need to be successful in the arts, which means like critical thinking skills and being able to defend your ideas in front of your peers Mm. and creative problem solving and um, being able to create something in a little amount of time with no money. (laughs) <laughs> Tell me that isn't a useful skill for any yes, scientist exactly. or museum employee. Um, so there's, you know, performing. Like people ask me, how did I wake up acting like this? No, I, <laughs> I took theater in high school. Um, public speaking, you know. So I had a lot of people along the way who really emphasized the importance of the arts. And I think like basically filling my tool kit, my toolbox with so many of these different methods of communication really just allowed me to then focus on what what are the ideas that I need to get across and what is the best tool for communicating those ideas. Mm. So when I worked at one of the largest natural history museums in the world, and I had a YouTube show that reached millions of people every year around the world, you know, you can, you can, dream up some pretty gigantic ideas for what you do with that audience. And that's why things like representation and science are always really important to me, because if you have, you know, a stage in which people are seeing scientists who look like them for the first time, you want to make sure that you're yeah. accurately representing science as diverse, as diversely as you possibly can. Um, so, you know, but that said, not everyone has access to a world-class museum and a bunch of scientists and their own YouTube show. But that's not to say that you can't continue um, advocating on different levels. And so again, like I'm, I'm back to creating smaller videos um, and creating artwork as a primary means of communicating a lot of those ideas too. Was there a mentor? Was there someone that really stands out as like who you looked up to? through this process? I would say in high school, uh, shout out to my painting teacher, Mr. Goldbranson, because I find find it a little ironic that now um, people call me a disruptor as though it's a good thing and I'll take it. (laughs) But when I was in high school, being called disruptive was not a good thing. (laughs) At least my parents didn't appreciate the notes home saying Emily's disruptive in class again. But, you know, Mr. Gilbranson, my painting teacher, um, he, he tolerated and encouraged my disruptiveness. So he was a, he was a landscape painter too. And he was maybe a little curmudgeon but we were curmudgeon together. And then when I was in college talking about my museum journey, none of it would have been possible without Dave Dyer, who was the curator of the Philip L. Wright Zoological Museum at the University of Montana, because Dave was the first person not only to like invite me into the museum, but also to let me stay and even oh. encouraged me to. So, <laughs> you know, I walked in there, you know, in this small university collection, just blown away by the possibilities as an artist, like everything that I could I could dream up to do in there. And I just didn't know if there was room for me. You know, I hadn't seen an artist in a museum like that in a science museum. I didn't know if if there would 
was space for that, if there's capacity for that sort of thing, or if there are if there was a role for an artist in a museum. And he encouraged me to bring my own perspective and talents um, to that collection. And over the two and a half years that I volunteered there, even after I graduated, I continued to work with Dave a lot. We even did a an art show that I curated with some of my art school friends and Dave created artwork for it, oh, inspired wow. by the stuff from the collection. So oh, we great. developed this, yeah, this really interesting just mentor-mentee relationship. And he encouraged me to, again, to just use my voice and my talent to advocate for museums and um yeah, and Dave was just like a, a phenomenal uh, person for that at the time when I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if there was a role for me in museums. And turns out he was right. Do you have a favorite place or experience or species that speaks to you perhaps more than anything else? Well, one of my favorite things about being a generalist is that I can change my mind as often as I want, which yeah, is what I do. That's <laughs> you right. know, and like when it comes to like new museums or like a new specimen, I'll I'll say like you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I visited the Burpee Museum of Natural History in Rockford, yeah. Illinois, and I'd never been to the Burpee, even though it does have like a world class reputation for having a some amazing fossils and doing a lot of great public outreach. Um, and it, I haven't been behind the scenes of a museum since March 2020. Um, so, you know, at that point, it was two years ago. And I was invited by their um, Josh Matthews, who's their curator, to come tour the collection. And we walk into the collections areas of the Burpee and, you know, he opens up a compactor and pulls out a drawer and hands me a Tyrannosaurus Rex tooth. And I'm like, how could that not be the most amazing thing? It doesn't matter how many other amazing things I've seen to that point. You know, here I am holding a T-Rex tooth and talking to this scientist who's, you know, contributed to this research. And, you know, whenever I have an experience like that, one, it is an amazing thing for me. And the second thing I think of is like, God, I got to share this with other people. Like this cannot be an experience that only I have. That's not fair, you know, so... So that's what gets my brain spinning. Like, how can we, how can we share this story? How can we get more people to, you know, to feel this like, connected to the world? And because not everybody can go behind the scenes of the Burpee Museum, but no. maybe there's yeah. a small, yeah. you know, museum in their, you know, community that they haven't been to and that now they're thinking about, or maybe, you know, I make a video about a museum in Montana and they end up, you know, going to the North Carolina Museum because they live in Raleigh. When it comes to like favorite places, just any time that I can bring a camera with me into wherever I go, whether it's a collection or a bat cave in Kenya, you know, <laughs> I just any chance that I have to to share a little bit of that experience is really what what I feel like is an honor to do. That's the sort of thing that gets me excited too. Right. Not only that it's a personal experience, but but that I get to share it with other people. I sort of suspect that your favorite place or your favorite thing is the thing you've just done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> with all this opportunity to see so much nature and to learn so much about nature and the environment, is there one thing, one call to action or one message that you'd like to leave, uh, leave our listeners with? You know, I've always been one to champion a participatory life 
you know, like to actively participate. It doesn't matter if, you know, that means, again, participating in your kid's school or participating in global scientific research or voting, but to actively and consciously take a look at the world around you and to think, what needs me? What could use my talents? What could use my privilege, my resources? You know, what what can I do with what I have for good? And because if you're at that question, like, what is the call to action? You're already poised and ready to do something. Um, and so I'm just here to encourage you, like, yeah, that's a good intuition. You should keep your ears open for how to continue tuning in, because that's what keeps us hopeful, right, is feeling as though there are other people in this together with us, um, yeah. that, you know, being on Spaceship Earth is not an isolating experience, but there are so many other people who are going through this sense of, you know, there's a lot of global uncertainty, a lot of apocalyptic feeling, but even that in itself is not, you know, an individual experience. We're all you know, <laughs> going through a lot of that anxiety together. Yeah. Um, so that's my call to action. Just mm. keep on showing up. I love it. And what about, what about for you? What's, what's next on your horizon? Um, that's a good question. I mentioned earlier that I've been painting a lot more. I've been partnering with the Described and Captioned Media Program, which is a program of the National Association of the Deaf, and it's funded by the U.S. Department of Education. And so they are co-producers on a series that I'm making um, as an independent producer called Art Lab, which is, you know, an exploration of the intersections of art and science. And so this is fun for me because it's a, a way that I can directly bring my background as a visual artist into the storytelling adventures that I have in, in science communication. So that's what I've been working on and getting, you know, my office at home set up so that I can print my own artwork from my house. Oh, great. So I'm like actually building my own art lab out of my house. How fun. Um, yeah, yeah, and just in general, like looking for any opportunity I have to champion Great. the natural world. And and how will visitors connect to Artland? Will it be online or? Yeah, if they look up my YouTube channel, it's just youtube.com slash Emily Grassley. And if Perfect. people check me out on social media, I'm at E-H-M-E-E on Twitter and E Grassley on Instagram. Those are probably the major areas where people can find out what I'm doing. Good. Uh, we I, will put all those links on the website. Yeah. Well, Emily, thank you so much for being with us today. It's just great to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, this was amazing. I, I really appreciate you having me on. Wow, that was that was so much fun uh, meeting Emily. I, I have to tell you, Eric, my son has grown up listening to Emily on the Brain Scoop. So, oh, fantastic! <laughs> for, yeah, she's yeah. wonderful, isn't she? She Just, she is. You know, thinking that she started as an artist and her perspective was humans being at the whim of nature. And in some ways, that's sort of been a thread right through how th that interaction with humans and nature is not only creating environmental problems, massive environmental problems, but also giving us hope. And that I think, you know, the fact that she attacks some of these big questions with humor and with intrigue and the sense of discovery, I think is is just so special. It's just, it, it's wonderful to listen. What did you think, Dan? 
I think her excitement and her energy uh, and the, the media she uses as far as, you know, with YouTube and, and in her art lab, I, I've uh, been following and watching some of those episodes. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think she's got uh, a, a lot ahead of her and, and will be a, a mm. big part of another generation of, of kids, as she says, uh, yeah. she told us. Um, I think she's great. You know, it was interesting, too. She used she said that the Anthropocene was common vernacular, which, you know, to me, of course, it's something that we in science use a lot, but something I wasn't sure if anybody, for instance, who might be listening would have heard of the Anthropocene, which, for those of you who don't know, is a new geological epoch that describes the, the, the planet as humans have changed it. So, and the Anthropocene is the time period where humans started making a significant impact on the chemical and geological record of the planet. Touches so many things that many of our guests, including Emily, have talked about, even thinking like representation and how creativity with different groups of people might be expressed. And Alexis Pauline Gums is a is a perfect example of that. And she's going to be coming in a in an episode uh, upcoming. I thought that there was a lot in there. It's, you know, you can really peel back the onion and 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 see a lot deeper into it. Thank you for listening to Love Nature. Check back for our next episode as we speak with poet and author Alexis Pauline Gums. Please subscribe to never miss an episode. All of the links mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes at love-nature.org. You can find our museum at naturalsciences.org. Love Nature is a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, located in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina.